Hi, everyone, and welcome to White Rock Baptist Church. We're so grateful that you found us, whether you are listening in your car or maybe you're washing dishes or maybe even you've got your feet up and you are relaxed and ready to listen. Either way, we are glad that you're here with us today. Here at White Rock Baptist Church, we are in a summer sermon series called Small Part, Big Story. And each week we're exploring characters in the Bible who have small roles. Some of them only have a couple verses and one of them isn't even given a name, but they all play a part of the big story, often supporting the main characters we usually hear about in the Bible, but even bigger than that, playing a part of God's big story. And we find ourselves in that same sort of situation. We know that God has called each of us to serve him by serving others and that that plays a part in our church community, in our local community, but in God's big kingdom. And so we're just excited for the different opportunities that you um, are in or that you'll find yourself in. And we would just encourage you to check out our website. We'd love to connect with you, hear more from you. If you're able to join us on Sunday mornings online to hear these live or even come be with us in person if that's available to you. Either way, we trust that God is going to speak to you and hope that it is a meaningful time that God reveals a little bit more about who he is and who he's created you to be and what your role is in his big, glorious story. Thanks for listening. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Really? Exactly. I should have gone with the kids. But they're having way more fun right now. Yeah, I was watching them up front, and and of course, I'm sitting at the back, standing at the back, so I'm watching you, and no offense to those at the top, but I'm assuming you were doing the same as the back down here. Uh, And it kind of reminded me of, of a comment I heard many years ago, and that is simply, how many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? None. They might think we're dancing. Uh, while I'm on that, while my train of thought is there, I was involved in a church for a number of years where one of the elders proudly declared that he didn't even dance at his own wedding because, you know, Christians don't dance, uh, or at least good Baptists don't dance. And I'm really glad that is slowly changing as we see our kids just enjoying worship and moving their bodies as they worship the Lord. Uh, And I know it's a little difficult for us because some of those songs, we don't know them properly. And so we're still just trying to figure out. And there's a lot of commotion. Uh, But I would encourage you, listen to the lyrics in some of those songs that those kids are learning. Uh, Those are the songs that are going to become familiar to them. You know, those kids are going to hound their pastor. Why can't we sing My Lighthouse? Sure, I'm a bit slow up and down the aisle, but I'll use my push frame. Let's sing My Lighthouse. And of course, their grandkids are going to be like, okay, just settle down. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say to them, you have a God-given purpose. I don't care if you're you're talking to a teenager. I don't care if you're talking to somebody in their 90s. Uh, I've said this a countless times. If you're not dead, you're not done. So this time, with a little more conviction, and if you're alone, turn to the people behind you or in front of you, with a little more conviction, turn to the person next to you and say to them, you have a God-given purpose. 
Now, I know some of you might be going, okay, but Brian, what is our God-given purpose? And I'm glad you asked because I can't answer that fully for you. But I know that God will reveal that to each and every one of us. I do, however, know that a part of your God-given purpose is to encourage others in their God-given purpose. This morning has been a celebration, in a sense, over the last week. It's been a celebration of our Summer Kids Club as we have had kids from the community, as we've had your kids come and join us all week long. But one of the things that I love about Summer Kids Club, as I kind of float through the hallways and just kind of watch what's going on, one of the things that I really love about the whole week is watching the volunteers behind the scenes. Uh, You heard on one of the testimonies of one of the young girls sharing how she has seen these kids coming up as she's volunteered over the years, and slowly now those kids are starting to volunteer. And it fires me up when I see people, young and old, because our volunteers for Summer Kids Club really do range the whole spectrum. But young and old, as we gather together for a week, those volunteers start encouraging the kids. They're pointing the kids to Christ. They're they're directing. And and yes, sure, they don't have all the answers because the reality is no one has all the answers. But they find their God-given purpose in helping encourage and direct the next generation to discover their God-given purpose. You know, a couple of weeks ago, or at least through the course of summer, we began a series, and we're doing this until the end of summer. Uh, And the series we're preaching through at the moment is called Small Part, Big Story. And, And it's the reminder that God has this big story at play. That God has this incredible story of redemption, of grace, of life, of forgiveness, of love. Uh, That God took on flesh and became a man and stepped on the earth and and God walked among his creation, visibly showing us God's love through Christ. And then Christ was crucified, dying for our sins, but he didn't stay dead. He was resurrected. He raised back up to life. And then ascended to the right hand of God in the throne room of God. And there's this incredible story throughout history of God at work in humanity drawing people back into relationship with him. And that's the big story. The problem is many of us think the big story is all about us. We think we're the the hero of the story. We think we're the main character of the story. We think we're on the stage behind the camera and in front of the lights and it's all about us. But yet we discover that that's such an empty story when we try and make it all about us. The big story is God. And I'm invited to play the small part in that big story. And it's it's this incredible part that has lasting impact way beyond what I think my life is all about. And that's what I see at Summer Kids Club. That's what I see through the week is these volunteers, young and old, kind of step into it and say, you know what, this isn't all about me. This isn't a story about my life. This is God's story, and I'm playing a small part in it. And so through the course of summer, we're looking at different characters in the Bible who don't get a lot of airtime, so to speak. They're these small parts, these small characters that we kind of skim past as we're reading, as we're trying to find the hero of the story. But yet, even these small parts teach us something incredible. And so today, the small part we're looking at is a guy by the name of Mordecai. Some of you may have heard the name Mordecai because you're familiar with the story of Esther. 
And for those of you who your kids were here during this week, your kids heard the story of Esther. And it's an incredible story. I would encourage you, if you haven't read Esther recently, Esther is a book in the Old Testament of the Bible. It's a short read. I would encourage you to go and read Esther. I've got to give a little aside here quickly because this is just so cool. So when we planned our preaching series for summer, as a pastoral team, we planned it months ago. And so we had everything lined up. And then a good couple of weeks ago, someone wise in our pastoral team kind of pointed out that the individual we're supposed to be looking at today, well, it's a little bit negative. And of course, I was like, yes, what's the problem? Sometimes we need a bad example of a good example or a good example of a bad example, I should say. And then the pastoral team kind of said, well, Brian, it's the end of summer kids club. And we've got all these kids coming in. We've got their parents coming in. Do you really want to guilt trip them through somebody that's a bad example? I said, you're right. We should look at a good person. And so Mordecai was supposed to be next week. So you guys are getting a week early as we jumped ahead. But then I got reminded this week that the kids all learned about Esther. So you're learning with them. And you can have a great conversation over lunch today about Mordecai and Esther. The small part that Mordecai plays in the grand story of God. If you have your Bibles, you don't have to turn to Esther. I'm going to be doing a little bit of a different approach this morning. I'm going to give you a narrative approach to the book of Esther. We're not going to read a whole bunch of chapters and verses from Esther. I'm going to summarize the story for you. You can read it at the end, and then I'll, I mean, you can read it afterwards. I will reference a couple of verses towards the end. So the story of Mordecai. Mordecai was born into captivity. And Mordecai is, is a Jew living in Persia. He's in the city of Susa. Now, Mordecai's cousin was a character by the name of Hadassah. Hadassah was a young Jewish girl. Her name, translated into Persian, is Esther. Now, Esther, as Mordecai's cousin, although there's this huge age gap, Mordecai rightfully, with the family connections and the family relations, rightfully adopts Esther and treats her like his own daughter. Mordecai raises her like his own daughter. He loves her like his own daughter. He cares for her. He provides for her. You know, Esther's name means star. That's the Persian name, this bright, shining star. The Jewish name Hadassah actually is a combination of two words, lovely and beautiful. And when we put those words together, it really means someone who is exceedingly beautiful. And we know this is a good description of Esther because the book of Esther tells us that not only was her name, did it mean someone who is exceedingly beautiful, Esther was exceedingly beautiful. Mordecai and Esther live under the rule of King Xerxes. King Xerxes is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Ahasuerus. I'm going to stick with Xerxes just because it's easier to say right now. King Xerxes is a man of passion. He's a man of power. He's a man who acts on a whim. If he gets an idea in his mind, he just goes for it and does it. Sometimes it gets him into trouble. Other times it's just because it's good to be the king and he can do whatever he wants. And so he makes decisions on a whim. I love the, the fact that the story of Esther basically begins at a drinking party. That's exactly how it begins. Xerxes is having a party with all his friends, 
with really the whole town. Uh, and it's a seven-day bender. And Xerxes and all his bards are drinking for a week. Uh, I shouldn't have to tell you that's not a good idea. You're not going to make wise choices after drinking for a week. And so King Xerxes, after drinking for a week, his friends, they get into a conversation and they remind Xerxes that his wife Vashti is exceedingly beautiful and she's known to dance. And so the king should bring her in and parade her in front of all his friends. Again, ladies, I shouldn't have to point out to you that most of you probably are not going to be too thrilled at that kind of request. And you can be thankful we live in the times we do. But Xerxes does this. Xerxes orders his wife to come and dance in front of everyone. And his wife, quite understandably, says, no. No, thank you. I'm not going to come and be paraded in front of you and your drunk friends for you to just ogle at me. And this is the part that I love. Because Xerxes' friends kind of point out to him, well, we have to do something about this. If you let your wife get away with this, all of our wives are going to rebel as well. And then what's going to happen to the whole country? It'll just be chaos and anarchy. An example must be made. And again, in their drunken stupor, Xerxes decides, yes, I will never see her again, and I will find me a new wife. Clearly, they've been drinking. So a search begins across all of Persia to find a replacement wife for King Xerxes. And of course, if you go back to Esther's name, and the character trait of Esther and this beauty of Esther, it becomes apparent that Esther is going to be one of the ladies that gets picked as a selection. And that's exactly what happens. And so Mordecai understands this. Mordecai knows that because of Esther's beauty and because it is known throughout the region, she will be selected to be on this kind of at this beauty pageant, for want of a better word. So Mordecai starts preparing her for this, and he gives her this interesting piece of advice. He says to Esther, do not tell anyone you are a Jew. Do not tell anybody what family you come from. Let no one know that you are a child of Israel, that you are a Jew. And so she says, okay, fine. Uh, and she gets taken along with a whole bunch of ladies into the king's harem, and, and they start preparing her. And, and the process uh, is a 12-month process to get ready to be brought before the king. Uh, the first six months, basically, you get bathed in oil and aloe and all those things. I don't moisturize nearly often enough, so I don't know what oil and aloe are going to do for you. Uh, but that's what they do for the first six months. And then for the next six months, you're bathed in herbs and, uh, and perfumes and all of those. So the obvious goal, so that you've got beautiful, smooth, soft skin, and you smell good. And so that's what they do for her. The interesting thing in the book of Esther, as we read in those opening chapters, is Esther finds favor with the God over the harem. Esther finds favor with this guy by the name of Haggai, or Haggai, sorry. And Haggai assigns to her the, the choice food and, and assigns to her even a bunch of handmaidens and, and grants this favor over her. And there's almost this little theme that runs through the book of Esther that sometimes we miss. And it's this idea of God's favor over someone who is obedient to what's going on in the realm of God's story. You know, something that I find fascinating as I talk about God's favor over Esther, the book of Esther actually never mentions God once. 
It's a, it's a fascinating study to kind of go, well, how on earth did the book of Esther even get into the Bible? God isn't mentioned. God doesn't speak. Yet as we read through it, we see the evidence of God behind the scenes all the way through. And so there's this favor over Esther by Haggai, and it's this image and this illustration of God looking over his children with favor. The word favor, I think, can be accurately described as loyal love. It's this love that is loyal to the object of the love, that displays care and concern, that gives, that resolves, that that provides. It doesn't matter about the actions of the object of the love. It is simply loyal and lavished upon. And isn't that such a beautiful picture of God's love for us? God shows favor over us, and God gives this loyal love towards us. And this is what Esther finds. And so Esther is prepared, and a year later, she is brought before the king. And the Bible explains, and and it gets a little bit R-rated there, and if you've never really read the Bible, there are some R-rated moments in there. I will skip those bits. Uh, But the Bible really says that King Xerxes, he was mad for her. He just, you know, she, out of all the women, there were none as, as beautiful and as, as intelligent, none as, as appealing, uh, and none that really made the king move in such a way. And so the king decides, this is the one. Xerxes chooses Esther and makes a, a statutory holiday to celebrate, and they have this, another feast called Esther's Banquet. And this is where he puts the crown on Esther's head, and she is now queen Esther. And of course, she's the queen. She's doing well for herself. And because she's doing well for herself, her adopted, or the father who adopted her, Mordecai, is doing well as well. And Mordecai places himself in a position of being able to just keep an eye on what's happening with Esther. Mordecai sets up uh, in front of the gate of the temple, uh, sorry, of the of the royal throne of the kings uh, of the court, and Mordecai sets up his table there, and kind of, he's aware of what's taking place. And because of his position, and because he's aware of what's taking place, and he gets to know people, and he's listening to the word on the street, listening to the stories, Mordecai discovers a plot against the king. Apparently, there are two eunuchs that are not happy, and they intend to assassinate the king. And so Mordecai sends word to Esther of the story. And so Esther kind of goes back to the king and says, hey, these two eunuchs want to kill you. And so they investigate the story and they discover it's true. And and so the king is thrilled and happy at that. And they record it in the king's book. Basically, the king's book is just the story and the history of the king's. And we might read through that in the book of Esther and go, okay, that's this kind of cool little side story. You know, it's this little side plot. It's not part of the main story, but it features later on. And so it's this beautiful little story in the big story of what's taking place. And Mordecai is recorded in the king's book as the one who discovered the story. It's kind of the side note, but it plays a huge role. And I think that's sometimes how it is in life. You know, Mordecai is simply being obedient to the law of his God. Mordecai is simply being obedient in his worship and service to God. But that act of obedience sets him up for victory later in life. Now, the key is to be obedient in what we do. 
And I think sometimes we miss that as we read through. There's this incredible potential that when we are simply, humbly, and faithfully obedient to God, even in the little things, it sets us up for the future. And so after this event is, happens, there's another person is introduced in the story. And this guy is a piece of work. His name is Haman. And Haman is very clearly an arrogant, prideful fool who thinks only of himself. And Haman is promoted to prime minister. And somehow in the, the king's kind of pride and in the king's rash just decisions without really thinking through, the king decides that everyone should bow down to Haman and show him, uh, kind of show him this loyalty. And, and, and it's not really worship, but just show respect to Haman. And of course, Haman likes that. I mean, what person would to have everybody bowing down to me as I walk past? That sounds like quite a cool gig. Except there's one guy who won't bow down to Haman, and that's Mordecai. And it's, it's an interesting little thought again as to why doesn't Mordecai bow down to Haman? There's nothing other than the Ten Commandments that say do not worship anybody else or anything else other than God. There's no rule that says you can't show respect. And there are plenty of illustrations, even in the Bible, of Jews showing respect to others and bowing in that sign of respect. And for some reason, Mordecai says, no, I'm not bowing to you. I'd love to know why, but he doesn't. And so Haman gets really mad at this, really angry. It's almost like Mordecai is getting under his skin the whole time. Why won't he bow down? And I love it because we skim again past that so quickly. Haman kind of has all this respect. Haman has this position. Haman has this power. And what frustrates him? The one guy that won't bow down to him. The one guy that won't show respect. And because of that one guy, the story is awesome. Haman is so full of himself. He refuses to allow one person not to bow to him. So Haman decides, I'm going to get this person killed. But I'm not just going to get this person killed. I know he's a Jew. I'm going to get all the Jews killed in all the land. You notice that? Like, how twisted is your mind in your pride? Instead of just letting it go, he decides, not only am I going to kill this guy, I'm going to kill his family, I'm going to kill his people, anybody that is connected to him, they're all gone. So, of course, Haman understands that Xerxes is the only one that can issue this, this kind of decree. But Haman understands that Xerxes is arrogant and proud just like he is. And so all he needs to do is to drop in something that appeals to Xerxes' pride. And so he does. He says this. Uh, Haman says to the king, there is a certain people scattered and separated among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They do not keep the king's laws so that it is not appropriate for the king to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued for their destruction, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the king's treasury. And of course, Xerxes, kind of, his pride is stirred because he's like, well, who are these people to defy me and my laws? 
and his greed is kind of appealed to as well with 10,000 talents of silver. That's a huge deal of money. That, that's millions and millions of dollars worth in today's language. And so Xerxes says, okay, sure. He doesn't stop to consider. He doesn't stop to investigate. He doesn't ask questions. He simply hands his ring, which in those days was like giving a blank check. You ever wanted somebody to give you a blank check that you knew it wouldn't default or, you know, it was just signed. You could fill it in and get whatever you wanted. That's exactly what Xerxes does for Haman. Says, here's the blank check. Go and do what you want to do. And so Haman pro proceeds to write a law into place that on the 13th day of the 12th month, everyone and anyone can attack and kill the Jews. But to kind of motivate people to do that, if you attack and kill a Jew, you can take their possessions. And of course, in a tribal system, in a wartime system, in those kind of peoples that already have this animosity towards other groups, that sounds like a great deal. I can wipe out the Israelites and I can take their stuff. I mean, this law is nothing short of a holocaust. It's the extermination of the Jewish people. And it's sent out across all the kingdom. And as it's sent out, the king and Haman casually sit down to enjoy yet another drink together. Of course, Mordecai learns of this. Mordecai hears the news. He reads the letter. He sees this decree. And Mordecai tears his clothing, and Mordecai covers himself in ash and sack, sackcloth and ash, sorry. It's that sign of mourning. And so he walks through the city, and he gets to the, the king's gates, but he cannot go in because no one who is mourning can go into the royal throne area. And he waits at the gates, and Esther catches word, and she hears that Mordecai is outside, and he's covered in ash and sackcloth, he's, and mourning for something. And so Esther sends down clothing to him and says, wash up, clean up, put some good clothing on. And of course, Mordecai goes, no, I can't do that. Not while my people, our people are in trouble. And so Mordecai sends back word along with the decree to Esther to show this is why I am mourning. Our people are in danger. Our entire nation is at the brink of being wiped out. They have been sold for a price is what he says. And he sends word to Esther and he says, go to the king and beg for our salvation. And so Esther reads the letter and then Esther responds to Mordecai. And this is what she says. There is one law that affects everyone in the land the same. It affects the slave and the beggar, the priests, and it affects me, the queen. If anyone appears before the king without being called, they will be put to death. Only if the king holds out his scepter to someone, may that person live. And then she goes on to explain she hasn't been called to the king's presence for over a month. Clearly, she was kind of the pride of the king and she was hot property for a while. But for whatever reason, she's kind of fallen out of favor, it seems. She hasn't been invited into the king's presence. She hasn't seen her husband for over a month. And again, we don't know why. We don't know if, if he's just grown bored or, or if she's burnt his toast or, or done something like that. We don't know, but she hasn't been invited into the presence. And so Mordecai gets this message. And Mordecai immediately replies with some necessary perspective. Isn't that sometimes what we need? 
We get so focused on where we're at. We get so focused on our experience. We get so focused on our trials, our troubles, our little situations. And we need somebody to bring this perspective of a bigger story at play. And that's exactly what Mordecai does. He brings perspective. And in Esther chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, Mordecai says this. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. And there's the perspective Mordecai gives to Esther. He kind of points out, look, if you keep quiet, we're all going to die. And don't think you're going to get spared. But who knows that perhaps for just such a time as this, you have been made queen. That's perspective. That's wisdom. That's advice. It took guts to say it. And maybe it was something Esther didn't want to hear, but what Mordecai does through that is he becomes this encourager as he brings this thought. He rises to the challenge and he inspires Esther and he lifts her up. And we read that Esther is moved by that. And so Esther sends word and says, right, get everyone you know to pray. We will pray and we will fast and we will cry out to God for redemption and release and relief. And so after three days of praying, Esther gathers all the strength she has, all the courage she can muster. She puts on her outfits and makeup and jewelry and all those things. And she enters into the court, into the presence of the king. And the way the court is lined up, the king is on the far side of the court and the king can see anybody who walks in. And there are guards all the way around. And the rules are such that if you step into that room without being summoned, if the king doesn't hold up the scepter, you're dead. It's as simple as that. And so she steps into that site of King Xerxes. And King Xerxes sees her and we read, he lifts his scepter. But not only does he lift his scepter, he calls her over. And he says to Esther, what is it, Esther? What can the king do for you? Name it and it will be yours up to half my kingdom. How's that for favor right there? Now, you know, sometimes we get confused by prayer. Sometimes we sort of think that, well, prayer doesn't work because I've prayed for something and and it didn't go the way I wanted it to go. I've got prayers in my book of prayers where I'm like, Lord, why, why hasn't this gone the way I wanted it to go? So I can't answer everything. But I can say that I will keep on praying because when I read illustrations like this, I believe genuinely that God moves in response to our prayer. And so I don't know what you're going through And this might be the only thing you need to hear this morning, but whatever it is you're going through, don't give up on prayer. Don't give up on bringing it to God and crying out to God and saying, God, help. Because if you don't help God, I'm as good as dead. That's what Esther prayed. God, help. If I step into that presence, if you don't come through for me, I'm as good as dead. Pray and never give up. 
And so she, she does just that. And the king says to her, you can have whatever you want, up to half my kingdom. And all she says is, all I want for you, my husband, is for you and our prime minister, Haman, to come to a special banquet that I've prepared for you. That's it. I just want you and your friend to come for a meal. Okay, sounds fair enough. And so Haman is sent for, and the king and Haman go to Esther's uh, area, and they go for a banquet with Esther, and they eat and they drink. And again, the king says, what is it you want? Up to half my kingdom, and it is yours. And Esther says, all I want you to do, if you have favor on me, is for you and Haman to join me for another banquet tomorrow night. Then I will tell you what it is all about. That's it. And so Haman, if we just pause and think about him for a little moment, Haman leaves there feeling pretty chuffed with himself. I mean, you can imagine it. He's already best buds with the king. And he only answers to the king. And he starts wandering off home, singing a little tune to himself, no doubt, pleased as punch, because not only is he good buds with the king, evidently the queen likes him as well. And so he's, I can only imagine, just merrily walking through and chuffed. And who does he come across? Mordecai. And what does Mordecai do? Nothing. Exactly nothing. And Haman goes from being excited and happy and pleased with himself and pleased with life to being mad and angry because this one guy won't bow when I walk past. And he gets home and he's just come from a feast with the king and the king's wife. But his wife can tell something's wrong. His countenance is down. He's angry. He's, I don't know, he maybe kicked the dog when he walked in or threw a pot or something. And she's like, well, you know, what's wrong? And of course, he explains this Mordecai has embarrassed him yet again. So his wife and his wife's friends offer some counsel of their own. And they said to him, why don't you build a gallows 75 feet high? Now, I come from South Africa where it's metric. So I don't really know what 75 feet high is. But I know that anything more than like eight or nine feet is enough to hang someone. So 75 feet, that's making a statement. That's like, I want this whole area to know when they see a dude hanging from that high up, what's gone wrong. So his wife says, build a gallows 75 feet high. And then tomorrow, go to the king and tell the king what Mordecai has done and have him hung as an example. And Haman thinks, this is great advice. And Haman goes to bed soundly and sleeps soundly because he's got a brilliant plan. And as Haman sleeps soundly that night, wouldn't you believe King Xerxes cannot sleep? King Xerxes has insomnia. And like any proud king in the midst of his insomnia, Xerxes calls for his attendant and says, come and read the book of my life. Read my autobiography to me. Tell me what I've done. And so his attendants do that, and they start reading through the book of the king. And wouldn't you know it, they get to the story of a man on the side who stopped an assassination attempt. The story of Mordecai. And the king lying in bed kind of goes, wait a minute, did we ever do anything to honor this guy? Did, did we reward him? And of course his attendants go through the books and go, no, no, king, we didn't. He, he did this, but we didn't do anything. So the king decides we need to do something for this guy. Very next morning, the king is in his throne room. 
Haman comes walking in. And before Haman can say anything to the king, the king says to Haman, Haman, what should we do or what should the king do if he wants to honor someone? And Haman thinks, this is all about me. Because as far as Haman's concerned, everything is all about me. And Haman simply says to the king, if you want to honor somebody, you put them onto your best steed. You put a robe on him and a ring on his finger, and you have somebody walk that steed throughout the city and have them shout, this is what the king does for those he honors. This is the reward the king gives to those in whom he delights. The king says, Haman, that is a brilliant idea. I need you to go do that to Mordecai. Of course, you can imagine. So Haman scurries out of there as quickly as he can, and he does it because he has to. And he takes Mordecai through a little tour, shouting out, this is what the king does for those who he honors. And he takes Mordecai back, and at the end of the day, he rushes home. And he explains to his wife what's happened. And his wife and his wife's friends realize, "Uh uh-oh, did you say anything about wanting to hang Mordecai? And of course, Haman's like, no. Well, this probably still isn't going to end very well. And so Haman goes off that evening to dinner with the king and with Esther. And in this dinner, as they're eating and drinking, the king turns to Esther and says, what is it that you want from me? Up to half my kingdom, it will be yours. And Esther simply says, my king, all I want is salvation for my people. For a decree has been issued that my people should be exterminated like vermin, that my people should be killed, and they cannot defend themselves. My people are at risk. And the king, in his anger, kind of goes, who would issue such a decree? Who would do such a thing? And Esther points out, Haman. Haman is the one who wants us destroyed. And the king kind of realizes, well, Haman's my friend. But in his frustration, in his anger, the king walks out the room to go and cool down, to try and think about what to do. And and Haman realizes he's in dire straits. So he cries out to Esther to save him. And he jumps towards her and he pleads with her. And obviously he, he stumbled, he's fallen or something like that. And he's clinging to her cloak on her sofa as the king walks in. And the king finds Haman basically accosting the queen. If things were bad, things were about to get a whole lot worse for Haman. And the king, right there and then, says to him, I've lost my place. And the king says to him, will you even assault the queen in my own house? And at that words, as those words, the guards grab Haman, And they're about to execute Haman. And one of the guards looks out and says, there are gallows 75 feet tall over there. Why don't we just use that? And Haman is hung on his own gallows. Mordecai is made the prime minister and together he and Esther write a new law in place because they cannot change the decree that is already written that on the 13th day of the 12th month the Jews can be attacked. So they write a new decree saying that the Jews can defend themselves with whatever means necessary to any poor fool who's stupid enough to attack them. And so of course no one attacks them. 
In Esther 8, verse 15 to 16, Mordecai left the king's presence wearing the royal robe of blue and white, a great crown of gold, and an outer cloak of fine linen and purple. And the people of Susa celebrated the new decree. The Jews were filled with joy and gladness and were honored everywhere. What Satan planned for evil, God turned into good. Evil tried to wipe out a people because of pride and arrogance. God reversed the plans and brought about life and salvation and redemption. And we might read the book of Esther as I close off. And we might rightfully say the hero is Esther. As I think of the theme, small part, big story, I think there's a hero behind the hero. That man, Mordecai, who simply encouraged and challenged Esther. And as I look at our Summer Kids Club, that is the role that our volunteers play. It is to be Mordecai to our children and to encourage them and to even perhaps use Mordecai's words, who knows, but for such a time as this. So what do I believe the point of this story is? What is it that we can all take away? What do we learn from this? Turn to the person next to you and tell them you have a God-given purpose. And that God-given purpose is to encourage that person, those people, those that God brings into your life, those who perhaps will cross your path, but for one day, the God-given purpose is to encourage them to discover their God-given purpose in the grand story of God in which we all have a small part to play. Let's pray together. Father God, I I simply praise you for the story of Esther in our Bible. I know we could study it from almost a critical perspective and, and we might question how could it get in there when you're not mentioned, you don't speak. Yet God, when we read the book of Esther, we see your hand throughout. Not only do we see your hand throughout, we see your favor over your people. And it spurs us on. Father, I thank you that you allowed Mordecai. You gave him this role, this job, this part to play in your grand story to simply raise and encourage Esther, who would later become queen and would later save her people. Father, I pray for each one of us here this morning. Jesus, I thank you that you have this great big story that you're telling through history the story of life in Jesus Christ. And you invite each one of us to play a small part in that big story. And sometimes the part we play is simply to encourage someone else, simply to lift someone else up, simply to inspire someone, to encourage someone, to strengthen someone. God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would look for those opportunities in those moments day by day And we would respond to them so that one day, together, we might bring glory to you and we might praise you and worship you for what you do in this world. And we pray these things together in the name of Jesus Christ. And we say, amen.